Inner Voice, a heartfelt chat with Dr. Fujian. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Inner Voice Show. I'm Dr. Fujian Zane. I'm a psychotherapist, author, and the originator of the Awareness Integration Theory. And hello to Sean, our director at the studio. This is a show about what matters most in our life, our mind, thoughts, feelings, actions, relationships, our fulfillment in this beautiful journey of life. In this show, I will share the tip of the week about how to stop wasting your good time and energy on pointless thoughts and emotions and how to become efficient in spending your mental and emotional energy. And then I'll share why we use sarcasm and the effects of it on the people who are actually receiving it. Then I'll bring you Marianne O'Hara, the author of the novel, Cascade, the Boston Globe Book Club's inaugural pick, a finals for the Massachusetts Book Award and the People Book of the Week. But today, we're talking about her latest book, Little Matches, a Memoir of Grief and Light, which is based on the Nine Lives Notes blog that she kept while her daughter, Caitlin, waited for a lung transplant. An amazing conversation, heartfelt conversation. So here it is, the tip of the week. when your internal opinions and dialogues are pretty much irrelevant, pointless, and are just wasting your valuable time and energy. Imagine sitting in your home or apartment, hearing a noise from other apartments or homes. Your mind starts wondering, checking out the noise. First, you may check to see if all is safe. Then you may assess to see if you could do anything about the matter. So far, so good, definitely relevant and necessary. Then you may begin assuming and fabricating all the what-if scenarios about the neighbor and what might be happening and then a certain opinion of what you like or dislike or that they should or should not be going or be doing such and such. This is when thoughts and opinions become irrelevant and unnecessary. Although as human beings, you're wired to constantly evaluate and have thoughts and opinions about all stimulus that enters your world, it is important to be efficient about the time and energy you spend on thoughts, emotions, and behaviors. Someone who's upset about their coworker's way of relating to her children, although the coworker's life has no bearing on this person's life, um, someone who spends most hours of the day angry at their siblings for acting a particular way while they have no authority to make decisions for them anyway. And someone who every day punishes her parents in her own mind about who they were and how they treated her when she was a child while knowing that she has no way of changing the events in the past are all the ways that one might spend a better 
stated, kind of like waste good energy and time over irrelevant matter, which would make it pretty much pointless. Unless someone enjoys this way of thinking as a dramatic internal entertainment, it may have no other useful application. So observe. In what ways do you waste your time and energy on irrelevant matters? What do you consider irrelevant? In what areas do you insist you have to have an opinion while no one is really listening or applying your opinion? How much time do you spend time, how much time do you spend on matters that uproar you emotionally? How many of these matters you actually do something that makes a difference for you or others? What would you pay attention to instead if you choose to let go of the irrelevant thoughts? So I have some suggestions. Observe your thoughts. Assess if this matter is impacting you directly or indirectly. Assess if you have the ability to do something about it. Assess if you have the jurisdiction or the authority, the control or the ability to influence the matter. Assess if your opinion and actions would benefit you or others. Assess if there are other people who are inviting your opinion or just telling you with their behavior that your opinion is irrelevant to them. Act, if you choose to. If the answer to all of what I said was no, then drop it and move on to a thought and action that is useful, relevant, and beneficial for you and others around you. That is what I call efficiency in thought, emotion, and action. So for more observational tools in every area of your life, go to my book, Life Reset, the Awareness Integration Path to create the life you want. Thank you for listening. Again, in the Ask Me segment, I have been asked to talk about why people use sarcasm when they can actually talk straight. So um, I guess I'm going to combine it with some research that I found as I was looking at why do people use sarcasm. And I'll share with you at the end of the research, but I would also add. So um, I found this research done by Pickering, Thompson, and Philip, published in the Metaphor and Symbol, examining the emotional impact of sarcasm using a virtual environment. Irony is used around 8% of conversational turn between friends making it a common form of non-literal language. Verbal irony describes a situation in which an individual makes a statement that means the opposite of what they say sarcastic irony, it is commonly believed to differ from general irony and that the statement or attitude conveyed tends to be one of a ridicule directed toward a specific individual. This can either be through uttering a positive statement to imply something negative like a sarcastic criticism or uttering a negative statement to imply something positive 
sarcastic compliment. For example, if someone performed poorly in a test, a sarcastic response may be, wow, you're so smart, a sarcastic criticism. Or alternatively, if they performed exceptionally well, a sarcastic individual might say, wow, you did terribly. It's like a sarcastic compliment. Although ironic criticism is more common than ironic praise, ironic compliments do nonetheless still occur. It is interesting to note that some researchers may argue that sarcastic compliments do not exist as they do easily fit with the definition of sarcasm. However, even though a sarcastic compliment would intend to praise, there may still be an additional element of implied criticism that is not present in a literal compliment as sarcasm tends to be delivered in a more mocking manner. Since verbal irony and therefore sarcasm often involves stating the opposite of what is meant, the words used are unlikely uh, to resemble the speaker's intended meaning. Consequently, irony and sarcasm can be fairly ambiguous and may result in processing difficulty. For example, resulting in disruption to eye movements during reading of an ironic comment. In addition to potentially resulting in processing, difficulty misinterpretation of a sarcastic comment can result in failed communication. Why then is sarcasm commonly used as opposed to generally more straightforward and comprehensible literal alternative? It seems likely that non-literal comments entails different discourse goals that would not be achieved through the use of literal statements. In order to justify the decision to use non-literal language, such as sarcasm, the additional information gained from the chosen expression of speech must overshadow the possibility for interpretation of the intended meaning. Experimental research into the additional goals achieved through the use of sarcasm have suggested a range of social and emotional functions. For example, to be polite, to save face, to identify with the in-group, to mock, and to harshly criticize um, <clears throat> one particular goal that has often been associated with the use of sarcasm is also to be humorous. Ironic comments were perceived as more humorous than their literal alternatives. Although sarcasm was perceived to be negative, it was also rated as more humorous. In an attempt to explain the effect of humor, the disparity between what the speaker intends and what the speaker actually says inevitably creates tension. And this tension, together with the surprise of hearing a comment that is the opposite of what is expected, results in the comment being perceived as humorous. Thus, <clears throat> sarcasm may be used to influence the emotional impact a comment has on the recipient compared to the literal alternative. However, there's a disagreement regarding whether this effect is to mute or instead enhance the positive or negative nature of the statement. Sarcasm is used to attenuate the condemnation or praise in a message, 
relative to the literal direct alternative. This is based on the idea that when a person first hears a sarcasm statement, they must initially process the literal meaning to some degree, which then takes the intended meaning. For example, using the negative term awful to sarcastically compliment an individual would take the comment with a negative literal meaning of awful, thus making it appear less positive than the positive literal alternative to say great. Likewise, using a positive term great to sarcastically criticize someone would take the comment with the positive literal meaning of great to appear less negative than the negative literal alternative awful. And the result of this um, research actually showed that ratings of the perceived emotional impact of feedback were influenced by literally, specifically literal compliments were rated as more positive than sarcastic compliments and literal criticisms as more negative than sarcastic criticism. The same pattern of effect was observed when participants consider the perceived intent of the speaker. The part that I also like to add to the research is actually that a lot of times when people are angry or <clears throat> they're not in a good mood or um, their way of thinking and being is kind of non-loving, um, sarcasm shows up, which they will put something that they're edgy about or agitated about or they're criticizing. Um, they put it into a humorous level where um, it's funny, so it kind of calms it down and it doesn't become a confrontive aspect so that the confrontation softens up and it becomes more like a carefrontive versus confrontive. But the other side of it is also that people, when they're confronted with saying a sarcasm, they can easily not take responsibility for that microaggression that comes and say, I was just joking. And it's true, they were being humorous, but the point of how you put that criticism within the humor, it still many times things. So the effect of the sarcasm, especially when it's having a criticism concept into it, it, um, it actually uh, leaves um, a nasty feeling with us because it's almost like you just got stabbed, but you can't even, the, the person won't even take responsibility for just stabbing you, but you kind of like felt stabbed. Um, but it's you're supposed to ha ha laugh at it or let it go. And if you actually got upset with the stabbing, then it would feel like there's not something wrong with you, not the, not the stabber. So that is also the negative part of the sarcasm. We talked about how it's useful in many, many aspects, but there's is also the negative aspect of the sarcasm. Most people, if you look at, if they're, um, most of their conversation is on a sarcastic level, they might have some issue with direct conversation. They might feel shy, they might feel vulnerable, they might feel like it's too bold um, or uh, it's too powerful and they can't have it to be that. And they kind of like soften it up consistently with the sarcasm. So those are the ways that sarcasm kind of work and doesn't work. So since you asked about sarcasm, the point is <clears throat> if you're using it, see how much you're using it. Is it helpful in your communication? Is it bringing two people closer together? 
Um, how else could you say things without the kind of like the twinge of anger or microaggression being in it? Can you be humorous um, and have some positive sarcasm in there? Um, or if you really have something that you're upset about, would it be effective if you actually kind of put it in sarcasm? Sometimes we look at sarcasm as um, kind of like a passive aggressive way of sharing things um, so that if you don't like something and you don't want to put it out there straight, you kind of like soften it up with that. Again, it's going to hurt anyway. The positive sarcasm, like, you know, you're actually giving a, um, a compliment to someone, but you bring it into like a negative thing, uh, try sometimes to also just say the positive without having to bring any negativity in it. Because sometimes even that shows you're angry and your anger is showing up. Your anger is leaking everywhere. Um, so use it appropriately. Use it in a way that is intended and uh, use it in a way that'll bring people together versus take them apart. Thank you for listening. Welcome back everyone, I'm Dr. Pujan Zane and I am excited to have Marianne O'Hara with me. She's the author of the novel Cascade, the Boston Globe Book Club's inaugural pick, a finalist for the Massachusetts Book Award and a People Book of the Week a former associate fiction editor of the Plowshares. She has taught creative writing, something I need, at Emerson <laughs> College and Clark University. Marianne is a Reiki master, yay! I am. I love it, we're gonna talk about that a bit, and was recently certified by the University of Vermont's Lanier College of Medicine as an end-of-life doula, so that she might better speak to the state of end-of-life care in our culture. We will be talking about her latest book, Little Matches, which is based on Nine Lives Notes blog. She kept while her daughter, Caitlin, waited for a lung, transplant, lung transplant. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. So happy to be here. Uh, so I know that you have gone through a lot. Um, and, um, and you share about you, about your experience, about your daughter's experience, but more than anything, um, the person who is, is, is beside someone who's going through their own journey, mm -hmm. seems like people who are around uh, that person also go through their own journey. And sometimes there's a, you know, survival uh, conversations that happens. There's a purpose conversation that happens. And um, sometimes guilt conversations that happen. And, um, this transitioning part, um, it's interesting, Marianne, because um, it's a, it's, some people are very afraid of it. Some people's own mortality shows up. Some people go question their uh, purpose in life. And um, some people uh, become very spiritual. And uh, for each person has its own way of being. And I think that in this book, you have not only shared for yourself, but you bring amazing questions where people can ponder on and look at what's going on. So thank you for doing that. Thank um, you. And I know that this, this book must have been very healing for you and hopefully healing and eye-opening for others. Mm -hmm. So can you first share um, a little bit about your daughter and the journey that you went through for writing the book? 
course. Caitlin was diagnosed with cystic fibrosis, a genetic lung disease, when she was age two. So her whole growing up years, we lived with basically chronic uncertainty. But she also was able to live a pretty normal life. Uh, cystic fibrosis is a progressive disease, and it doesn't always destroy lung tissue that quickly. And in her case, it did not. She didn't really start to decline until she was in her 20s. And in her 20s, she, she really did start to have a really poor lung function. Yet she was living such a normal life. She was fiery. She was spirited. She lived independently. She traveled. She did everything she could until finally it was the straw that broke the camel's back and she needed a lung transplant. And we ended up having to wait two and a half years. And that's a whole other conversation. But it, it took its toll. We did always have hope that it would happen and it would work, um, but it came a little too late for her. And she passed two days after the transplant, basically from a brain bleed. So it was horrible. It was devastating. She was my, she was my person. We had a really close relationship and that's pretty common with, with kids who are sick. And she was also very, um, she was an old wise soul. She was a sage of sorts to her friends and and her family. And after she died, I, I really couldn't do anything except write on the blog that I had kept to keep friends and family abreast of news while we were waiting for transplant. And I sort of used it to grieve out loud and to connect with people, a lot of strangers, and share Caitlin's wisdom, share my stories. A lot of synchronicities started happening, what we would call signs. And I was feeling extremely skeptical, a, a vulnerable, grieving mother. And yet when I shared them in a sort of declarative way, this is what's happening. The most unlikely people would come out of the woodwork and share stories too. So that sent me on a big journey, a spiritual journey. So the arc of the book is really, yes, this is what happened and this is how I survived grief and learned to live with it because it never goes away. And you wouldn't really want it to. A person that you love that much, you're always going to grieve them. But the book is really about my search for answers to the big life questions and looking inside of science and nature and personal relationships and all of it and coming to some conclusions in the end that provide comfort for me and apparently are providing comfort for other people too because I'm getting some wonderful feedback from the book and it makes me very happy. I love the sentence you wrote, life is seriously a wild business. And it's oh, I love that, yes. For a little while. Um, yes. I've had the experience, um, of, actually one of my greatest friends is a psych who used to be a psychologist and had the cystic fibrosis and he kind of mm -hmm. learned about it when he was about 40, like when the first time signs, some of the signs came in. And I remember when he found that out, um, he became very depressed about facing death and facing mm -hmm. mortality. And I remember him, um, his wife called me and said, Fujan, you're the only one he will talk to. He won't talk to any of us. And he's a therapist, so he's not just that they won't even talk to anybody else, but he will talk to you as a friend. And um, and then when we went on lunch together, Marianne, he told me I'm I practice being dead in order to let go of fear of death. And I said, What do you mean by that? 
He said, well, I just kind of like lay down and go like this and just imagine what would it be for me as a non-being. Mm. Being, what does it mean for me and others around me? And what would it be as a non-being? Mm. Um, and he said that that's the way I'm trying to anticipate and let go of anxiety. Can you share a little bit on fear of death and not only the way maybe Caitlin faced mm -hmm. it, but the way you also were facing it as losing someone? Oh my goodness, yes. And actually right now, this morning, I've been working all day on a talk that I'm going to be doing with um, a doctor and uh, the mother of a woman who's had the same story as Caitlin and her story was published posthumously, her memoir three medical memoirs and we we are going to be giving we've already got them set up we'll be doing grand rounds programs at hospitals where we try to change the conversation a little bit because we have three perspectives and one purpose and that's to show how medicine needs memoir medicine needs story statistics don't change people's hearts but in in the way they act but but story does and i was just writing this morning about the fact that we we over prepare for birth in this country and we completely underprepare for death and we just hope for the best and hope is not a plan we all know that hope is not a plan and yet we do it anyway and here here was caitlin with living with end-stage cystic fibrosis for years you know for, for a very long time because you don't get a, a transplant until you're you're pretty sick and yet no one had ever really sat down they had prepared us for everything except what will happen if it doesn't work? And when the crises started to unfold, we were just in a panic and throwing everything at, 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 you know, insurance companies will pay for anything in the ICU and doctors aren't social workers and they'll just do whatever needs to be done if the, if the parents and the family and the loved ones and the patient want it. So we weren't, we didn't even have the presence of mind at the end. And Caitlin had never really considered what would happen. And looking back, if she had known what had happened to her in that ICU, I think she would have preferred a good death. And there is such a thing as a good death. And that's why I did the end of life doula training, because I wanted to be able to um, do hospice volunteering. First of all, I've always been a volunteer and I I feel like I'm really ready for hospice as soon as COVID lets me do it. And also because I just wanted to speak to that. And I want to speak to young medical students and say, you know, if you guys don't prepare people, who will? And I think that my, my line is that palliative care should begin with the diagnosis regardless of prognosis. And that means way back in the beginning when, when the worst case scenario is so far out or unlikely and it may never happen but if you prepare in in this applies to anything but if you plan for the worst case scenario it just relieves a lot of anxiety and it sounds like that's what your friend did because anxiety is a horrible thing to to live with and dying is probably going to be pretty brief so you're living with that anxiety that's ruining your your quality of life day to day when just by making a plan and thinking, okay, I know this is what I want. This is what I don't want. I don't want to end up in the ICU. I don't want to die in the ICU with, a, with an alarm beeping. I mean, it's just horrible. So I think that planning is, goes a long way toward relieving anxiety. And I think people need to think about it. You know, the arc of a human life 
is a thing. We are finite. We are all temporary. And I can understand. I don't want to think about it. I didn't want to think about it with Caitlin. But I'm thinking about it with myself. I can tell you that. Now, you know, you go through something like this and you realize that we are temporary. Yes. I remember um, working with many they still do work with the many cancer patients where um, they obviously, you know, are um, facing the ones who are in the fourth stage that they're facing in their family systems and facing what's there. And I think that there's always this hope that something shows up and then it all goes away. But then, you know, there's a different way of looking at it also, which is even if it doesn't happen this time, it will sure happen someday. It's not one of those things we can run away from. Unfortunately, um, no. The illness we could we could get healed from, but the you know dying we're not going to get away from. So at one point we have to face this, and it's one of the hardest things uh, that people go through. I was talking to an oncologist actually yesterday, and we we're talking about palliative care because he is one of one of the people who um, who got trained for palliative care and he was saying that only still some states have it and other states don't have it and in one of the states that they don't have this um he had known a person who their elder mother was constantly asking the the the, the son just to come on please 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 just end this for me because i am mm -hmm. i'm so done with this and um the 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 pressure that was on the son to do this in order to love his mother, uh, he supported her um, and then went through all of this guilt about what did I do? Like you, you know, you listen and you go through, but then what did I do? And it was part of our conversation, just the same thing you're saying, like, if it's not talked about, if it's not put in a, in a plan, if it's not put in a system that it works for everyone. Um, people do things then at one point, then they get really, really emotionally traumatized about it. Mm -hmm. But if it was planned, if it was, you know, in a state that was legal, if it was, you know, if, 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 then maybe uh, both the mother and the son would be living graciously, living and dying graciously. Right. Uh, versus going through the pain and then the trauma of the pain. So it is so important for this type of planning. I think people have gotten more used to financial planning about it, but mm -hmm. not necessarily an emotional planning about it. Right. The emotional planning, that's key for Can sure. A little bit about that. Right. And, and again, you know, for people who are healthy and and don't really have to think about dying, it's kind of hard to get them to think about it. I can understand that. But I think after this last year with COVID and seeing how, you know, the, Mother Nature showed us that we really don't have any control, I think a lot more people are in a different frame of mind. I'm certainly seeing that. And what I really tried to do with Little Matches was not write my tale of misery, not really focus on my story. I, I knew that it needed to be universal in that it could apply to anyone going through any kind of hard loss. And how do you cope with hard loss? What do you do when, when the worst happens, regardless of what it is? Usually it's loss of a loved one, but what do you do 
it, it, when you say, what's next? What now? How do I go on living? Is life meaningful? Does my existence serve any purpose? Those are the kinds of questions that most of us do come to ask. And I always had, but in a ruminating sort of way, after losing Caitlin, answers became so necessary and I needed to go on my, my own journey and I take the reader along with me. And I loved the way People Magazine talked about the book. They said it was bracingly honest and deeply comforting. And that made me really happy because that is exactly what it is. And I was just talking to someone today who said, the directness is just so great. It makes me, you're speaking for the way I always felt and you're showing me I'm not alone. And I love that because that is what I wanted to do. And I also wanted to comfort and inspire people. I really want people to really think about what really matters at the end of the day. And, and that is something Caitlin did do. And, you know, being young, um, growing up with an illness her entire life, most kids like that are old souls. Um, and she was, and she, she gave a lot of thought to questions of meaning and purpose and in what you leave behind. But she didn't want to die, for sure. But she did confess to her best friend the last summer of her life that she feared that she had been put on this earth to teach others lessons. And her friend, who was bizarrely going through her own breast cancer diagnosis at age 32, was devastated and said, no, don't say that. But, you know, was it a premonition? Who knows? Um, and her friend has gone on to create an incredible community health center in Africa in Caitlin's name. So what is your um, experience as far as the answers to these questions? Obviously, the answers you share uh, are your own answers, but then these mm -hmm. answers also open up those questions um, for other people. Right. about nature of life, um, purpose of life, uh, what dying might feel like, what might be waiting for death feel like, or waiting for ceasing to exist feel like. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, there's a lot to it. There, there are many answers to that question, and I do explore all that in the book. I used to consider, I, I, I've had an open mind for a long time about consciousness enduring after death, some of the University of Virginia uh, reincarnation research that has gone on for dec decades is, is quite remarkable and dry. It's very dry and boring, but it's quite convincing. Um, but after losing Caitlin, it all felt like wishful thinking. So I was even harder on myself when I went off looking for answers, but I really didn't know how I could continue to exist without her. She's my only child. I loved her more than anyone and I love my husband, but I, my daughter was, was my sidekick. And it's been really hard living without her. Um, but, I, but I was very, um, I, went, I, I went through and just said, okay, I'm going to read the science books and I'm going to brace myself for the fact that science can pretty much prove that we die, we die. Consciousness can, it can in no way endure after death and that that information isn't out there science calls consciousness the hard problem no one can explain consciousness and there are people and it's hard of course to do research on this sort of thing but there's a 
a group in Arizona, some research scientists who tried to do these um, proving theor theories of brain focused versus you know consciousness materialist uh, theories of of consciousness. I'm not even explaining that very well. They do a better job of explaining it than I do. Um, it's called the Winbridge Research Institute. But I've read some of their information, and it's quite interesting. And then I totally never planned to see a medium, but a very well-regarded one came into my life. And I actually put the transcript of the recording with her in my book when I am actually being very closed off and not giving her anything. And it was a blind reading. She knew my first name. And she said things no one ever, no one could know. No one could know. And then I also learned about how she had had her brain um, scanned while she was reading. She had a PET scan done of her brain, and so has uh, Laura Lynn Jackson, a quite famous medium as well. And their brains show significant abnormality when they're doing readings. So, you know, there's, there's something there. And I really think the fact that we even exist and that this world exists and it's all so magical and, and in balance, I, I just feel like, well, is, is it really that much of a stretch to believe there's at least one level higher than this? You know, I'm not saying there's a man up there with a long white beard and a staff. But the fact that there could be something beyond this, which is already pretty amazing, and even so much of what we take for granted now, would have been, it would have been considered witchcraft or magic not very long ago. There's a wonderful um, quote by a man from the late 1800s that I've always loved. It's, the universe is full of magical things patiently waiting for our wits to grow sharper. Eden Philpots. I've always loved that. And, and look at it. When he wrote that, most of what we live with certainly didn't exist. You and I talking on two coasts, looking at each other and speaking. I'm impressed with telephones. You know? So I, I find it all very interesting. And I love, I don't like closed minds on either end. And I, I love a good open mind. And I love questions. And mainly I want to ask questions and look for the answers. And one thing I write about in the book, too, is the difference between being told something and knowing. We all know what that knowing feels like. Knowing is, is deep certainty. It doesn't matter what anyone tells you. If you know something, you know it. And so I can't give anyone my knowing. But people can ask their own questions and come to their own conclusions. And I think it's a great thing to do. I mean, we're here. It's a magical life. Why, why just, you know, go to Starbucks and go to work and why not ask questions and think about what's beyond because it's really quite fascinating. Yeah, you say um, that it's uh, the life is uh, uh, our journey through growing our soul. Yeah, I, to me, honestly, it makes sense that um, that's why reincarnation makes sense to me. And I don't know if you've read like that book, Surviving Death, or seen that Netflix show. I didn't see the Netflix show, but I did read the book. And I had heard about that first case study with that little boy who insisted he had been an airman who had died in World War II. It was very well documented. And it's kind of 
you know, it's convincing. It's convincing to a lot of people. It's convincing to me once you read it and read all the details and read the records and read how they how they documented everything. And Leslie Keen's book is full of endnotes. Um, but I, 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 I just think that there's more to it. And I kind of just lost my train of thought. So help me. <laughs> well, the, what, the question that comes up for me is how did uh, living with, uh, with your daughter's most precious uh, being in your life and knowing already and from age two, I think for you, it meant much more than it would have had for her that she has mm -hmm. the fibrosis because you as an adult had a different idea about it of what's going to be than a two-year-old. So I can imagine you living with this type of an anxiety and the grief, it's all, you know, some people think the grief is only happens when you lose someone, but the grief can happen the minute that you're anticipating the oh, loss. Yes. And I could see like exactly from age two of your daughter, you began anticipating grief, which went through and then you having to come to terms with letting go. Uh, you had no other option, but uh, you also had to choose to let go. Because I know a lot of people that uh, their loved ones dies, but they stay in denial. They stay in push and pull. They stay in the bargaining stage and they won't accept it. So there is also takes us to let go. Um, and I can see that even when it comes to our own death, there has to be a space where we let go, like we're willing to let go. Um, because even if there is a reincarnation or, or the soul and the consciousness, you know, it's still mm -hmm. So exactly. Oh, you know, I still have to let go of this identity of right. life, of who I am. So, you know, whether I will come back as another being or as just mm -hmm. the information in the cellular level that, you know, enters the plants and the animal right. and, you know, the food of another person and it's just, you know, whatever. So, I, you know, until science actually proves whatever it is that we're all guessing, mm -hmm. one thing is for sure. And I have to let go of this identity and this body. Exactly. That grief um, has its own process. And I can see that you choosing to become, um, you know, the end of life doula and having not only had to experience your own grief, but now living, I mean, working with people who have to let go of their own mm -hmm. body and identity and then have to work with the family also to do that to let go of this body and that identity and that person's you know kind of like um the person in their life like you said caitlin was my psychic like her not being here uh the missing was in 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 a lot of space in a lot of spaces every day right. so bear with me um that process a bit well, you reminded me that we had, I had lost my train of thought when we were talking about growing the soul. And if our, you know, our soul is our essence and it's who we are regardless of whether we have one life or many lives. And so I think that introspection that we can do to really think of who am I? You know, yeah, my identity is this and that and everything else, but who am I really, really? And what's important to me? And what is my purpose? What brings me contentment and happiness and love 
I started, um, I created this little legacy workshop that I gave three times last week where I sort of frame little matches um, around the idea of legacy and Caitlin's legacy and in everybody else's legacy. And then I lead people through a little workshop on how to create, how to conduct a life interview with a loved one or with yourself. And I really recommend that people ask themselves the questions too. And I start it with reflection. Like, who are, and it's like not, not for answering, but just reflect. Who are you? What is your identity? What else are you? And then going into the questions that can help you sort of think about your life philosophy and your, and your purpose and, and can make your day better. I can tell you that Caitlin's friends are remarkable in that she, she actually was the kind of person who had like six different people say, Caitlin is my best friend, who are still grieving her terribly, but going on to do really wonderful things in her honor and saying, you know, Kate, I always ask myself, what would Caitlin say? What would Caitlin do? And would Caitlin be proud of me? And what's really important in life? And, and that's why, that's really at the end of the day what I, I want my book to do, for people to really ask what really matters at the end of the day. Because at the end of your life, I mean, we're told this and elderly people will say it and sick people will say it and Caitlin always said it. One day she got annoyed with me. I write about it in the book and she didn't say it in a pious way, but I was fretting about something and she said, oh, mom, don't you realize that the only thing that matters is loving people and being kind? And it really is true. Like what else really matters? You know, if we didn't have people in the world, if you suddenly found yourself alone on this planet, would you really even want to live? I think it would be just horrifying. So yeah, I think that growing the soul, I like to think that, you know, make it a game of let's pretend. Let's pretend it's true that we come into this lifetime with, with a rough path and that we've chosen this life and we've chosen to learn lessons. If you look back, you can pretty much figure out what those lessons you needed to learn were. And I think that by taking the glass half full approach is, is just so healthy for people to, to look at anything that's been hard and say, well, what, what did I gain from it? What did I learn from it? How did it make me a better person? Rather than, you know, descend into bitterness or, or grief. You know, I'll always have grief, but it's not, it's not that kind of debilitating grief. And by sharing Caitlin with the world, um, that just brings me great happiness. And it keeps her soul, her essence alive, regardless of who she was for the last 30 years. Um, can you tell us a little bit about um, what does uh, End of Life Doula does? What is yeah. And how do you support uh, the person who's leaving and the person and the people who are staying in that process? Yes. What's interesting about an end of life doula is most people have never even heard of them, including my niece, who's a hospice nurse in Maine. She said, I have never heard of one. I figured everyone had heard of a birth doula, but a lot of people haven't heard of birth doulas either. The word doula is Greek for a woman who serves and birth doula doulas help people, um, prepare for birth and a death doula does the same thing. I don't actually like the word death doula because although a lot of people call themselves that death to me just seems like such a finite word. I prefer end of life because we all have to decide what end of life 
end of human life means for us. However, it's basically providing support in whatever way the family and the client needs support from the time of that terminal diagnosis to the time of the passing and beyond. And that can take any form. That can take sitting with the person, just sitting vigil, holding vigil with them, helping them write life stories, legacy stories, helping prepare a funeral, walking the dog, finding information out in the community that can help support the family, um, you know, Meals on Wheels, et cetera. Pretty much everything and anything. It's not, even though my certificate came from the medical school, it's not anything medical in the same way that a birth doula isn't actually delivering the baby. So imagine a really empathic, wonderful, caring assistant. Yeah, giving you the support you need. It's an amazing emotional support. It really is. And, you know, my niece, too, said my my client, my patients are so scared when they get that diagnosis. They would love to have someone like a doula. So the good thing is it's a very growing field and it's still very new, but it's growing and there are directories online so people can look up and hopefully find one. And also BJ Miller, the hospice MD, um, he's a wonderful person. Watch his TED talk. I think it's what really matters at the end of life. I think that's what it's called. He out in San Francisco um, has had a really uh, innovative kind of hospice. And now he has a service called Metal Health, which provides like counseling to caregivers and, and people. So it's a lot of end of life support that you can do online from anywhere. So for people who are like stuck somewhere with no real support, at least they can get some of that emotional support. One of the things that I experienced, um, just wanted to share with you and, and everyone was when I had been uh, with um, friends, family, and, and clients who are in that space, seems like many of them also just need permission. Mm-hmm. My uncle, who was not religious at all, like he would be claiming that, you know, he's an atheist. Mm-hmm. Um, I went back to, to see, you know, my family said he's on his last days and you should come back and see him. So as I went and sat beside him and he looked at me, he said, Pujan, I've never had any religious beliefs. I've never had an um, other life or, you know, that there's anything beyond that, you know, we're animals and we just die. And that's it. It's part of nature. And, uh, but the past couple of weeks, I see all of our relatives and then he would call their name uh, that had passed on. Um, come in uh, many hours a day here and they're they're partying they're having fun and they're kind of like asking me to come into their community and telling me they're waiting for me and that you know I should just come on come along and um, I'm confused is this just something that I'm you know delusional is this my way of, you know, trying to figure out safety for myself when I, you know, kind of, kind of like create this image and then my mind is trying to comfort me. Right. And he had all of these questions about how, why is this process happening to him? And part of our conversation was, so what? <laughs> it is what it is. I mean, whether it's the truth or your mind is creating this imagination to make you feel better it's exactly. Beautiful. So it's, it's wonderful and comforting. 
Exactly. That a whole community that you knew and you missed <laughs> are waiting for you to go. Right. Like, you know, what should I do? I said, well, if you like, you can choose to accept the invitation and say yes. And um, then, you know, then it was more like, well, how do I say goodbye to all of these people around? And I said, say goodbye. However, <laughs> how, you know, you influence their, listen to how you influence their life and tell them how they influenced yours. And uh, when you're complete, um, you know, when the next time these people come show up and uh, want to take your day, your, your hand, then go for it. I said my goodbyes and I said that I won't. And I, I did exactly how he had influenced my life. And he thanked me for some of the things that I had done. And, um, and I left. And two day, I, I actually flew back. And two days later, he said goodbye and he moved on. Mm. I've experienced that a lot with also with, you know, my cancer patients where their, their family's like, okay, and he, they're sitting and saying, I don't think I have a permission to go because all of these people are waiting for me. And it's, and it's going through and helping that process of say goodbye and let go. And sometimes I've just seen they need permission. They do. And nurses will tell you that people who are nurses who are with people at the end of life over and over throughout history all over the world will tell you those same stories that you just told and people look and say you're gonna think I'm crazy but I see my sister she's smiling at me so there's definitely something going on and like you said regardless it's comforting and I think it is important to let people know, like my daughter was unconscious at the end, and in the morning of the day she we pulled life support, I was saying, please don't go, please don't go, please don't go. And and once it was clear that she needed to go, I I said, I didn't know how bad it was when I said that. Of course, it's okay to go. And one of the things that that medium said to me was, she wants to bring me back to her passing. She's acknowledging you on the left side of her telling her that it's okay to go and i thought well nobody could make that up um and that was just part of it so i don't know i don't have all the answers but it is very comforting and wonderful and uh gives you a lot to think about yes and the point is one way or another we're all going to go through this we're either, definitely going to die one day uh, we might have to sit through someone we love who they died and yes. we all have to face death. So I think that your book um, is a great book, which whomever, wherever this stage they are, they can definitely ask those questions and come up with their own answer. So in one minute, is there uh, anything we haven't touched upon and Mary, oh you even want people to know. Well, I do want people to know that this book might seem like a book about grief, and it is, but grief seeks light. Grief and light are all points on the spectrum of love. I truly believe that. And the book is, uh, I love that people are saying they stay up all night reading it and they can't put it down. It's, it's not what you might think, and I hope you'll check it out because uh, I'm really proud of it. And I think it's a really good handbook for people to to read and to refer to and there's there's a there are wonderful characters my daughter and a lot of humor and living in life so 
I'm really excited that it's out there in the world. Thank you. Where can they find you? My website is my name, M-A-R-Y-A-N-N-E-O-H-A-R-A. And uh, everything's there. The book is out. I recorded the audiobook, and it's out in all forums. And I'm on Instagram. And that's my favorite. I like photographs. So <laughs> Beautiful. Marianne O'Hara, everyone, please get Little Matches. A memoir of grief and light. No more of grief and light. Thank you so much for spending this Thank time. Thank you, Fujian. It was so lovely to meet you. Same here. Thank you. And come on along when you write all your other novels. I will. I'm getting back to my novel. Thank you. Beautiful. And for all of you who are out there alive and kicking, <laughs> create an amazing life for yourself and everyone around you. And until I love that. And until next week, bye-bye.